favorite directorial debuts. Wait, what the- Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Nerd's Guide to the Apocalypse. My name is Judd Potter. And I'm Max Sexton. And you have found your way back to the Apocalypse's favorite movie podcast. This week, we survived Tripods, a la H.G. Wells' War of the World. I'm glad we made it. Um, this week, we're going to be discussing and analyzing our favorite uh, directorial debuts. And now, I realized last episode, we talked about doing um, the film I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Which I understand we still intend on doing it. Yeah, well, we'll do a full episode-length review. But because we're changing up the format of the show a little bit, that's that's why we've been gone. So the we're, we're going to bring the podcast back in a new way. Where we're going to do topics every week. And this week, we're going to uh, do a couple things. We're going to talk again about what we've been up to, what we've been reading, watching, playing. We'll each pick one thing to kind of go into for a few minutes. And there are obviously timestamps in the description. You can skip around if something's not interesting to you. Of course, it's all interesting, though. Of course. Um, and then we're going we to are each... nothing if not terribly interesting individuals. Terribly. Uh, full of insightful commentary and wit and pithy uh, phrasings. Yeah, um, and so we're going to pick uh, the top five of something every week, and we're each going to pick a top five uh, in no particular order, but um, so this week we're doing our five uh, five notable um, directorial debuts in honor of uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which was Macon Blair's directorial debut. Um, and so... Uh, I also apologize for any background noises you hear. We currently are surrounded by uh, a doggo. A dog that is a whirlwind of energy. Yes, so... Uh, so. Just have patience. If you hear growling, it's not my stomach. <laughs> um, Good timing, Molly. Good timing. And so, uh, uh, but then we're going to end the episode with a uh, final recommendation uh, pulled from our, each of our five top five lists. And we're going to spar over which one should be the singular recommendation of the episode. And at the end of the episode, we'll choose the topic for the next episode based on whichever directorial debut wins our battle of the movies. Yes. And so, uh, without further ado, uh, while we hear the tripods roaring outside, tearing up our friends and loved ones, Mac, what have you been up to lately, other than running from the tripods? Well, I mean, I've been mourning for the death of my loved ones. Thankfully, my dog made it down here. Right, right. So we've got Molly. Yeah. Um, and a Blu-ray player. What have? <laughs> yes, true. That is very nice. Uh, so I've been playing around with a mod that I found online. So lately, I've been getting into old, uh, old video games that I didn't have the chance to play way, way long ago because I was a Mac user for so long. Uh, pity me, pity me. Mac doesn't like Macs. Fancy that. Um, 
But uh, I discovered something rather interesting. Uh, so the original Thief games came out in the early 90s and are well known for being uh, sort of the, uh, the beginning of the stealth genre as we know it today. They were the first person's uh, sneak them ups where you played as a thief named Garrett mm -hmm. in a sort of low fantasy steampunk city. But what's interesting, and this is what I've been doing, someone made their own version of Thief in the Doom 3 engine. That's cool. It's an entirely free mod you can download called the Dark Mod. Apparently, it's been uh, apparently it was greenlit on Steam some time ago. I have not I've not heard anything else about it since then. But I've been fiddling around with it, and while it doesn't translate perfectly in the Doom 3 engine, I mean one that's built for shooting zombies, not elegantly sneaking around and pickpocketing blitheringly uh, uh, idiotic guards. Right. Uh, it does help me fulfill my inner kleptomaniac fantasies. So We can talk about that later, Mac. <laughs> with your therapist. <laughs> Who happened to make it back into the bunker with us? Oh, 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 Dr. Erickson, hi there! <laughs> hi, Mac. <laughs> do you feel the compulsion to steal anything? Hello, Mac. Do you have the feeling that you need to steal anything? <laughs> Dr. Erickson... <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm thinking, like, psychologist, he's got to be German. Oh, oh, yeah. Everybody knows all psychologists are German. Of course. Yeah. Just like all babies are Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so the system's a little bit clunky. It's, it's, def it's, it's fascinating how they've managed to recreate the original Thief game so, uh, so accurately. In a first-person shooter. Game. Well, yeah. Thief is it the first-person shooter. Um, or no, it's a first-person game. It's not really yeah. a shooter. You called it a sneak-em-up earlier. Yeah. Anyway, it's really interesting how they've managed to so accurately recreate uh, Thief within the Doom 3 engine. Mm -hmm. uh, really, it feels like Thief. Its clunkiness comes from the fact that the Doom 3 engine wasn't ever built for anything like this, but as a free total conversion mod, you can't do better. Cool. Um, if you... Um, are at all interested in um, user-generated content as a still active community and um, nostalgic first-person stealth, you, I would recommend it. I would recommend it. Very cool. But enough about me. What have you been up to? I am shaking hands with your dog right now. Uh, she does that. Paw sometimes. to hand. Uh, I just finished Preacher this week. That's right. You were telling me about that earlier today. I am about, oh, 16 years late to that party. But um, it is uh, a graphic novel series that came out from 1999 to 2001, uh, written by Garth Ennis, drawn mostly by Steve Dillon. And um, really, really good stuff. Garth Ennis is one of the Brits. In that wave of uh, English writers that DC and um, even Marvel a little oh, bit, but like uh, with Alan Moore, with Alan with Moore, Brits, they hired uh, Neil Gaiman, yep, yeah, that whole that whole crowd. Yeah, he was on that boat. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. And so Preacher is a series where you have um, a character named Jesse Custer, who's a reverend in Texas. And well, with a name like Jesse Custard, I can't imagine how he'd be any Custer, else. not Custard. <laughs> he would shoot you in the face if you called him Jesse Custard. <laughs> well, I'm very glad he's not real. <laughs> right. Um, he, uh... The, the, the tripods are the ones that need to shoot me in the face. Right, Jesse right. Custer. I mean, that'll be a few minutes from now anyway. Yeah. Um, but until then, uh, Jesse Custer is a guy who, uh, he is, um, he's a minister in Texas. And so what happens is, uh, his whole life changes and the story starts when, um, 
uh, being from heaven that was never supposed to escape heaven does so, finds its way directly to Jesse Custer, and uh, in combining forces with Jesse Custer, becomes part of him, uh, this sort of in- spiritual entity does, uh, it does several things. It burns down his church, vaporizes everyone inside, except for Jesse, who now has the power to speak with the word of God. And I mean that in the red letter like sort of way, where he can tell somebody to do whatever, and they have to do it. I think I had a fever dream like that once. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so that's that's the basic premise. Um, and his quest is, in, in the universe of this graphic novel, God is absent. He has fled his throne. And Jesse believes that God owes answers for his uh, absence. Um, and his uh, he's not taking care of his creation. He believes that God has an obligation to take care of his creation. And so Jesse's hunting him down and is going to get answers from him. And Jesse's really cool. He believes he's a cowboy, and at different points in the story, he actually gets visions of John Wayne telling him what to do. Um, I reiterate, fever dream territory. Yeah, it's really good. And so the the book does a good job of maintaining this distance where the way Jesse gets this arc where he is, you know, the best cowboy stories, let me put it this way. The best cowboy stories are the ones where they're made vulnerable somehow. Um... Like Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, all of those characters that they play, usually, with the very few exceptions, are going to be tough men who are competent and get the job done um, at all cost. And um, Jesse thinks that way. And the book does a good job of like showing that in all of its nuance as like the kind of like you know admirable like quality of toughness that that sort of person has. But also the incomplete life that that is, like you know, completely emotionally shut off and un- unable to ever cry, that kind of thing. And you find out why Jesse can't cry personally and all this stuff. And so Jesse goes on this whole arc where the world is going to challenge him to become a more complete person. And um, you've got other characters like Cassidy, his vampire buddy, and you've got Tulip O'Hare, his assassin hit girl girlfriend, and. Um, they all get together to go hunt down God Almighty. And it's unbelievably good. So I highly recommend it. It is grotesque and um, uh, irreverent in the best ways. If you would be offended by anything I've said so far, skip it. But if you think it sounds interesting, at least as an entertaining thought experiment, I highly recommend it. If you like graphic novels, this is one of the uh, defining series in the medium. Sounds like a rip-roaring time for the whole family. Bring the kids. Bring some popcorn. Put I would the kids in the seats and put the popcorn in their mouths. I would recommend putting the kids to bed before this one, <laughs> honestly. I really would. Um, but, so that's Preacher, and Mac talked about the Thief mod in Doom uh, 3. The Dark mod. The Dark mod. Dark mod. To like... make you play Thief. Uh, and again, like I recommend the Thief games, but if you if you're short on cash, the Dark mod is totally free. It's available for Windows, Linux, and Mac. So You can literally play it on Mac if you set him on the table and start slapping his belly. It's um, a little horrific, though. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Um, and so now, let's just move straight into our main segment of the show. Yes. Insert fanfare and editing here, Judd. The top five directorial debuts picked by each of us and this is in no particular order we just picked five that meant something to us i really didn't have any science to these picks 
I um, had yeah. four criteria. I had what were four, your criteria? My criteria were as follows. One, what is the quality of the film itself? Okay. I if if it's if it, it doesn't matter if it's a great like debut. If I did not enjoy it, it did not make my list. Okay. Um, so which, how much which, you enjoy which, it? which of course implies that I'm at least passingly familiar with all of mine. It's, yeah. I'm not like I'm not gonna throw down like. Even though like um, I am a fan of this man's work, I'm not gonna throw down like Eraserhead because I've not actually seen it. Right. Even though I really want to. To that point, my one criteria was that I had seen the movie. So second they, criteria. What's your second criteria? Yeah. Second criteria is how does it fit into the overall filmography of each director? Since we're focusing on directorial debut, we're giving a little bit more credence to the auteur theory, which is the theory that uh, a director is the film. Mac, I gotta stop you right the there. Novel. I gotta stop you right there. We have stepped into something I like to call the cinema snare. Uh, I was waiting for this. And I so, was waiting for this. The cinema snare is a phrase or idea that I set out before the beginning of the episode. And if Max stumbles into it, he has been trapped in the cinema snare. This week, the cinema snare was auteur. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Right, I made it a little easy just so we for sure have it. Um, and so, the way you have to get out of your cinema snare, we'll come back to our top fives. But right now, as you can hear by the music, something significant has happened and Mac is trapped in a cinema snare. How does he get out? He has to name for me two films from his favorite director. And I'm going to say, I'll make it a little easy on you, especially since it's the first time we've done this. I'll say a favorite director. Oh, thank God. So give me two films that were not the debut of one of your favorite directors. Fargo and O Brother Where Art Thou. Who would that be directed by, son? Well, it'd be two, actually. That's by Joel and Ethan Cohen, mm-hmm. the Cohen brothers, um, who have not always been my favorite director for a long time as a kid with Steven Spielberg, but as time has gone on, especially in the last couple months, um, I have developed a far, far deeper appreciation of the Coens. Fargo holds a special place in my heart, and O Brother Where Art Thou quite literally blew my mind when we watched it. It took several minutes to scrape off the wall and sort of sloop back in my ear. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, those those are good picks, Mac. And if you would uh, just lift your foot up a little bit, little bit. Okay, okay, it's uh, up, and, it's up. All right, I'm moving. Okay, you're out of the cinema oh, snare. Oh, thank goodness. All right, okay. we're out of the cinema snare. So you were describing... My criteria. Your criteria. You were under the third one. A second. You were still in the second when <laughs> you, when you slipped second. and yep. said, yeah. A tour. Yeah. <clears throat> so... You're free now. The, the, the <clears throat> cinema snare is broken. Right, yes. Which I was going to say. I'm going I'm to just list off all the Coen's films. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, so uh, basically for each of these directors, how has like how does this work fit in with like their stuff as a whole? Um, so if, if it's a really great film by a really horrible director, it's that less likely to be up, uh, appear on my list. Third is how to... Uh, how it affects uh, pop culture and mass media, like as a whole. Uh, at least one of my picks, if not two or three, are substantial. Not only in that they are really good movies, but in how they change the filmmaking landscape. Okay, so impact on on on, on the way on Hollywood. Yeah, and by which I both mean the medium and the culture surrounding it. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good one. And finally, I tried to pick something that I tried to pick films that I was. Fairly certain you would err away from. Okay, cool. So my films are are my films are not necessarily like the highest of art, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a filthy postmodernist, so I don't care. Right, absolutely. 
So we're, we're both filthy postmodernists, so what you're about to hear are just a slew of texts thrown at you, all of equal value. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> having, having said that, um, the fact that we're talking about all of these means yeah. that we are recommending... And if you can survive the ensuing invasion, we highly recommend you take a look at these. Yeah, so these are definitely like movies to check out if you haven't seen them. Yeah. They're not just great debuts, they're great film. Yeah. And then we will pick one champion, one ultimate recommendation at the end, culled from this list of ten films. Yes. Unless, assuming there's no overlap. If there's overlap, it'll be fewer than ten, but we will pick one of those to be the ultimate recommendation of the episode, uh, and that, that should be a good fight. Well, what say uh, you that you lead us into this, then? Okay. You so my first pick is from two years ago. Uh, Roger, uh, Robert Eager's The Witch. Yes, I remember you were really excited about this when mm-hmm. it first came out. All right, Hudson Hudson was very excited, too, another one of our friends. Um, it is an interesting movie. It is uh, uh, basically young Goodman Brown uh, meets um, contemporary horror cinema, <laughs> basically. Um it is Young Goodman Brown, Nathaniel Hawthorne. If, if you've read, if you've been to your English classes in high school, you would have read that. Um, it is really good. So the director, most of the dialogue is drawn actually directly from... Um, if you hear noise in the background, Molly is drinking water vigorously. Um, most of the dialogue is drawn from letters and journals from the period. Um, and just, you know, amended a little bit to make sense for scenes. Um, it's about a family who... Is isolated. They have to move out uh, a little further into the wilderness from uh, from the from the Puritan city that's nearby, uh, and things begin to go wrong very quickly. And the horror comes from the it's a it's psychologically horrifying, not necessarily because there's a monster in the woods, but because people stop trusting each other. And so uh, you, you get the idea. You've seen the Crucible. Um, Anybody could be the witch, uh, anything like that. Um, but I mean, there, there's uh, when people stop trusting each other, you have uh, any situation can be tense, taut, and scary. And so, uh, like even the jump scares in this movie are when people like slam open a door really quick, and it's not cheap. It's actually like he's just angry and walking out of the room. And so, like that, that is really well done, mature stuff. The detail level of detail in this movie is incredible. The um, like the cabins and stuff, they actually went up to New England and got people that made cabins out of the same wood in the same style as the cabins you would have in Puritan times like this. They didn't just settle for like, you know, visually passable replicas. They actually went up and got professionals to remake this stuff. So uh, the level of detail, level of immersion, and the uh, psychological scariness, and the um, ultimately like the existential scariness of it is really really cool stuff and um Anya Taylor-Joy she's the lead actress um and uh she's really good it's um she you might have seen her recently in Split if you went out and saw that in theaters but uh she's really good and and the movie really centers around her and how her family and really the Puritans can't make sense of uh female sexuality and not just female sexuality in a in a explicitly sexual way but in like a puberty kind of way and uh having your own identity kind of way um the conflict all starts and ends there and it's a really really good place to explore um this movie is uh maybe maybe we do an episode on feminist horror films but it would be a very good putting that in conversation with the babadook yes absolutely they came out around the same time and um they're definitely in conversation with each other 
Uh, it is, and it's really good. It is a really good movie. I highly recommend The Witch by uh, Robert Eagers from 2015. Mac, what is your first pick? All right. Well, I'm going to begin with what I think is the weakest of my picks, okay. actually. And that is George Miller's 1979 Mad Max. I like this choice, though. Okay. Oh, and I like it, too. So, George Miller is a really worthwhile director if you're interested at all in a combination of animation and action films. Because he's got a... The amount of work that he's put into Hollywood and the way he shaped it is nothing shy of jaw-breaking. And jaw breaking. <laughs> well, <laughs> jaw dropping. punches you in the jaw, and it's a combination of jaw dropping and like <laughs> your chin's gonna hit your ear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's a diverse director. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he's done everything from like Happy Feet uh, to Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> which if that's not a hell of a gap, I don't know what is. That's about the range of the spectrum there. Yeah. And and you'll see this as a recurring thing with films on my list. The fact that this movie happened at all is nothing shy of kind of incredible because it was shot on a shoestring budget, if even that. But the reason I think Mad Max is really significant is because for a film coming out in 1979, it shaped over 30 years of mass media consumption. Mm -hmm. Even though it was not the final evolution of what Mad Max would become, which I think we see in... Uh, the Road Warrior, and I think we see to a greater extent in Fury Road, uh, it introduced this, this sort of like gritty post-apocalyptic uh, wasteland mm -hmm. that we see in everything from um, the Book of Eli to Fallout uh, to any number of other entries. Like, this is where it all comes from. This is sort of the post-apocalyptic urtext. Mm -hmm. You see, quote-unquote, post-apocalyptic films before this, like uh, Planet of the Apes, but nothing, nothing like this. So even though I don't think it's George Miller's greatest work, it was a turning point for the, uh, for the entire industry. And it's an interesting example of uniquely Australian film. You wouldn't get Mad Max from anywhere else. Yeah. It is a uniquely Australian product. Um... So, I don't think it's the strongest of my films, because I think, uh, like, as a film itself, Mad Max falls down, especially when compared to later entries. If you've seen The Road Warrior, Mad Max doesn't compare, and if you've seen Fury Road, Mad Max really doesn't compare. But I think that's also an unfair comparison to make. Right. For what it is and what it was at the time, I think it's a really important film from a historical standpoint. Yeah, I like it. But let's. But that's my first. So let's get on to your uh, second choice. The dog has sneezed on my leg. Is that twice? Code? Is that code that the Martian's breaking in? No, no. The dog has literally sneezed on my leg. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I think. What is Doctor Erickson? What do you think about dog sneezes? I think it is a rep representation of the inner id of the dog and the way that the dog is dealing Do with. Doctor Erickson, please just go back to your beans. Thank you. The, uh, very well. I will have you know so that the noises outside are growing louder. Don't, don't worry about it, doctor. Doctor, uh, just enjoy your beans. Let us let us talk. Let the, let the grown-ups talk movies. They are tasty and filled with bacon. Uh, speaking of the Rhine River, um, my second pick <laughs> is going to be Francois Truffaut's *The 400 Blows*, his 1959 classic. If you hear growling again, it's the Martians. Um, uh, and so this is the his film about existential ennui uh, of the French New Wave. Um, this was one of the major <clears throat> films of the French New Wave, no it less. It is. It is. It is one of the the uh, All flagship movies, yeah. right up there with like Jean Luc Godard's. Do I have that right? Godard. 
Goddard. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm from Tennessee. <laughs> right up there with Goddard's uh, Breathless. Uh-huh. is one of the yeah. big films of the French New Wave. Yeah, and so what you have is these people are... The, 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 the French New Wave, they're basically inventing modern filmmaking. Um, and so you it, it really makes sense to do the uh, any French New Wave director as an auteur piece. Um, because now, they, if you fell in the trap, do you have to do the thing? No, because we already we've broken the trap. You broke the trap. Okay. I wasn't gonna say it because I knew where the trap. Maybe was. I'll start laying my own traps. Yeah. Who, how about this? Whoever wins gets to pick the topic <clears throat> and lay the snare. I like it. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. That's that's your right and responsibility if you win. Um, okay. So what was I saying? Four hundred blows. Um, it's the story of Antoine, uh, uh, a boy who lives in a world of childish adults, um, and he's the only one who actually has sort of any maturity to him i think that's accurate um and it's the story of him trying to escape these systems and institutions that hold him down because these systems and institutions whether it's school the orphanage later on he is and um he is held down he's um the man's holding him down um the uh they're run by silly foolish adults and he wants this kind of sort of freedom you know and so you know we have him constantly running away from authority and that's essentially what you get in the movie without giving everything away um and but the the way it formally does long takes and um lingers in shots while uh transitioning with jump cuts and things like this that are new to the french new wave uh it really makes sense to holy shit <laughs> it really makes sense to look at this movie as a product of uh, of an auteur of as a significant directorial debut because it feels like one of the best films of all time and most people would argue that it is um and it's somebody's first feature movie that's incredible it really is yeah so that that's why it's fun to look at these directorial debuts is because they're uh it's like you, you know you look at all these you, you watch a lot of movies and you're like that was that your first movie and that, that amazement is what's fun. So what is your second pick, Matt? Okay, my second pick is a film that I both love. I love the films that came from it. And I love what it did to the entirety of the film industry. And that is Sam Raimi's 1981, The Evil Dead. Uh-oh. So, for the record here, again, disclaimer. I don't think this is the best of The Evil Dead. I think that's Evil Dead 2, which came out a number of years later. Yeah. For my money, that's the best entry. However... For what it is, again, The Evil Dead is great. And it's one of those films that, for all intents and purposes, should never have come to fruition. Right. It's a miracle that nobody was killed on set. They were using live guns on set. It's literally smashing windows on set. I didn't realize set. that. Okay, so the scene where Ash takes the shotgun and fires out the window? Yeah. That's live gunfire. Holy crap. It's a miracle that nobody was killed in this thing. Wow. But on top of that, The Evil Dead introduced so much to contemporary film. Not only did it repopularize, like, the cabin in the woods type of genre. Right. Uh, but on top of that, this was one of the first films that Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers, that we've spoken about. You've mentioned about them. Yeah. Yeah. He cut his teeth on this one. This is what this, he edited this film, and it was this sort of beginning relationship between the Coens and Sam Raimi. Right. Uh, it also gave us Bruce Campbell. That's why you'll see Bruce Excuse- Campbell in Fargo season two. Right? Exactly. Yeah. It's why it gave us Bruce. Pardon my French. Bruce motherfucking Campbell. Yep. I mean, wow, what a cool guy! Like, and he enjoys every moment that he like. And again, this is he's, he's one of those actors who's in any role is just effort, effortlessly cool. Oh yeah, yeah. 
even when he's playing a complete schmuck, you just can't help but like the guy. Right. And this is not him at his best. This He's playing Ashley at this point, not yet Ash. Mm-hmm. But even then, like, there's a certain... Uh, the seeds are there. This, just, just like you're saying with the Evil Dead. I mean, the seeds are planted in this movie for the stuff that's to come. Exactly. <clears throat> um... But even more than that, considering the low budget that they had, the practical effects in their own right, though they look cheap to us now, you you still have to stop and wonder, how did they pull that off? Yeah, I'm a little freaked out now that they're using live ammo. It's just like, man is the most fun prey. (laughs) We kill our extras on set. Oh, yeah. The Evil Dead... Like, revitalized horror and sort of just blew up out of nowhere. Nobody saw this coming. And, um... It's really opened the door to sort of the over-the-top uh, 1980s horror films that we know and love, like the later Friday the 13th films, the later John Carpenter's Elm Street films. Yeah, John Carpenter's later stuff. This opened the door to a lot of that. The seeds were laying back in the 1970s, but for my money, The Evil Dead is essential to getting to that point. Again, I don't think it's the best film on my list, but it holds a very special place in my heart, and I think that it's absolutely worthy of historical attention. And it's a dumb, fun, gory romp. And there's something to be said for that. But enough about my next pick, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. That's also my next pick. Okay, so let's double up. This is a dual pick here. Yeah. So there are going to be nine total films. Yes. So, okay. So we've each, we've each picked Reservoir Dogs. All right, so this is Quentin Tarantino's first film. Came out in 1992. Introduces the world to the likes of uh, Tim Roth and... Um, it's not his first film, but Steve Buscemi is Steve in Steve Buscemi, and... Um, I'll look it up, actually. Oh, my Lord, what's the man guy's name? That is Tim Roth, you're thinking of. No, no, the other guy. Hang on. I'm going to actually pull up the cast list Thank here. Thank you. So, let's see. So, Tarantino appears in it. Tim Roth is in it. Uh, Michael Madsen, Steve Buscemi, Harvey, Harvey Keitel. That's who I was looking for. Um, there, there's, there's really some great talent on display here. But more than anything else, like, the irreverent, hyper-violent, stylistic tendencies of Tarantino, though they're not out in full, you can see from this moment back in 1992, where we're going to get the hateful eight years later, we see this whole progression in a single film. The thing I like about Tarantino the most, and you see it, this is a great example of it, is this is a guy who has seen every movie. And so he is going to be like the Coens, one of the best postmodern directors, just right. mashing everything up together. Like he does not eat his things individually at the same time at Thanksgiving. He just puts it all into a mush and throws his face into it. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Well, no, it's not. It's actually horrifying to look at. <laughs> but the films that he makes are beautiful. And so what we get is the way that uh, this is a heist movie, where the heist is not in the movie. This is the results of a heist that you'd see in another film. And the over the underlying tension throughout this whole thing is we know that one of the people in this uh, gang, this group of robbers, is a uh, is a plant, right? A a, um, a law enforcement officer. So it's similar kind of tension uh, device to the witch, where you know, where like everybody thinks that somebody else is uh, is this bad guy. It's beautifully directed with its pacing. It has some of the snappiest dialogue in film, like. Even to this day, like... Oh, it holds up, for sure. Oh, it's great. I think everything we've mentioned so far holds oh, up. Oh, yeah. I think that of what we've mentioned so far, this probably, like, well, other than The Witch, because that's, like, the most contemporary thing, but if we're, t- if we're looking about films outside of the last ten years, I think this holds up the best of what we've mentioned so far. Yeah. Um, it's violent, it's irreverent, it's funny, it's thrilling, and 
it's a, it's a good example of of the power that it is in postmodern cinema to tell a surprisingly in-depth character-driven narrative. Mm-hmm. Um it's it, it's incredible because it, the fact that this film would be impressive coming from any director, but the fact that this is Tarantino's debut film and that like other films build off of this one and like get even bigger and grander is nothing shy of incredible. And it's it's the it's the way to do your low budget where you don't where you have a story that makes sense of your low budget. So this is a heist film without the heist because you can't afford a heist. Um, but you know you make a script that doesn't call for it. You make a script that works because it doesn't have a heist. That's how you do a low budget. And so many, so many films, so many TV shows, so many things uh, overestimate their their story overshoots their budget. And so you either have really cheap looking action set pieces, or it just becomes a film about action set pieces. Right. And this is a film that knows exactly what it is and it executes that perfectly. And I think Tarantino almost always does that. Oh, absolutely. Not that he has any trouble with budgeting now, of course. Right. No. <laughs> They're like, we'll sell God for you. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> uh, you know what? Speaking of speaking of like people. Uh, doing um crazy deals with tarantino when he did the hateful eight they actually like they actually had to like cut a hole in this display case on the wall for him to pull out like these special lenses mm-hmm. um because he was shooting what was it it was like it was some insane aspect like anamorphic shoot. or something yeah like something that has not been used since like 1958 and, and you like, could only actually watch it in that aspect ratio in certain theaters in la right yeah, yeah. Other than that, like they just had to adjust it for the screen. Yeah, so it's really cool, cool stuff and beautifully shot. But they actually did have it like a little. It looked a little. They they used less of the screen. They used it. They, it was a little bit narrower, a little bit wider than most yeah. showings. Um, but they still didn't have even screens the right size for that. It's supposed to be super wide. Anyway, that's hateful eight. That's a different list. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different list. That's uh, that's that's top. 10 horror films that are not really horror or... that's top 10 films that are actually stage plays <laughs> there's like three on the list yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah so Reservoir Dogs um, fantastic yeah. movie since we were both talking about that one how about you go to your second pick okay or fourth pick this, I, are we counting down be, or counting up I we're counting up I think okay so go to your fourth this pick this is so. my fourth of five um, and this one's going to be probably the shortest time spent on it because it must be said for us to retain our film studies uh, cards. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it is the Citizen Kane of cinema. It's Citizen Kane, 1941, directed by Orson Welles. Not H.G. Wells, who wrote the very tripods that are attacking her bunker now. That sounds horrible. Okay, I think we've gone past. Okay. Orson Welles. <laughs> um, this is a movie about a guy who uh, creates a newspaper empire. Um, is it, it is a story that has become... Uh, let me see what IMDb says about it. I'm just curious. Citizen Kane is one of those films that routinely uh, holds a place in the top films of all time lists from critics. It's a film that was panned when it came out, but since has risen to legendary status and will not be making my list because I think that to, to dwell on this film with how much people have dwelt on it already is kind of an arbitrary everything point. that could be said has said far more eloquently than anything we can do about it yeah. so I will read you this slightly reductive IMDB summary following the death of a publishing tycoon news reporters scramble to discover the meaning of his final utterance and so what happens is you're Rose going Rosebud's the sled <laughs> spoilers <laughs> for 1946 um so what happens is 
uh, and by the way, if that's the spoiler to you, you haven't been paying attention because the movie's about a lot more than that. But the um, uh, the movie is you're you're following these newspaper reporters as they kind of investigate this guy's life and how ultimately empty and unfulfilling his purely Randy and capitalistic existence actually was. I'm <laughs> glad I got to hear Randy in a sentence. Was that was that your cinema uh, snare? <laughs> uh, uh, objectivist would probably be the better term, but I yeah. wouldn't call I wouldn't call I wouldn't call Charles, I wouldn't call, call Charles Foster Kane uh, an objectivist or Randian. I would call him a misguided romantic. That's more accurate for sure. Yeah. Anyway, but it's still about the pitfalls of capitalism. How about how about philosophically romantic, economically capitalist? Yeah. There we go. Because I mean, he's buying people without he's buying people and corporations without seeing them as it being any different from each other, and he's um, he fails to connect with another person in a meaningful way his entire life, um, and he doesn't care about the human consequences of his actions. That's what I mean by purely capitalist. I think it's. I think what's interesting about this is the fact this is widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best, films of all time, and this was the first movie that Orson Welles ever made. Mm-hmm. And you would ar- and you could argue that he never topped this. I don't think he did. I think I think he did some. His cool Othello is pretty interesting. I, I was gonna say I think he did some cool things um, in like the sixties and seventies actually yeah. with with uh, long term uh, uh, film essays. Yeah. But even then, like. Although, he did voice Optimus Prime. Did he really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Sit up, oh my gosh, Mac, we're about to open your world. Hang on no, one see, second. The, I'm going to make some, some people angry at me. I don't really care for Transformers. I don't dislike it, but I don't really care for it. Um, but I didn't know he voiced Optimus Prime. What? Transformers the movie stars Orson Welles as... Let's see full cast. Now that's the one with Op- that's the one where Optimus Prime dies, right? Uh, no, he's he voices Unicron. Excuse me, take my nerd card away. He voices Unicron, which is like uh, another Transformer. That's not Optimus Prime. I was about to say, I'm just so confused right but now. But he, he voiced in Transformers cartoons and the movie for years. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Orson Welles did a little bit of everything. Well, and because his career was one of the most dramatic, had the most dramatic peaks and valleys of almost anybody. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because, um, you know, you make Citizen Kane and they're like, take all the money. And when it's not the best movie of all time, they're like, take none of the money. And so and people had like, a really And he has to go to Europe. And... Yeah. Anyway, all of this to say, Citizen Kane is one of those movies that if you haven't seen Really? You haven't seen yeah, Citizen definitely. Kane? Yeah, without being patronizing, go see Citizen Kane yeah. just to be cinematically literate. Right. Yeah. It's You're going to be familiar with everything that happens in it because at some point or another, every film has like borrowed from this at some time or and another. Ever, and you've seen cartoons that do the Citizen Kane episode, you know? Right. But they're, they're, when you're watching it, if you, if you haven't seen it yet, you're going to go watch it on our recommendation. The, some of the stuff that you'll just take for granted that this movie is actually innovating is people talking at the same time on screen. That wasn't really done before this movie. No, uh, no. People, like, uh, the camera moving in and out of rooms, the way that the um, some of the angles that the camera gets are entirely new and unique, uh, being, like, high or just in unique spots where, like, they actually lowered the floor so the camera could be down, you know. Um, the way that you'll hear uh, several scenes where there's music or speeches happening, and you can hear people talking and having conversations during these loud moments. And that's also stuff that did not happen before Citizen Kane. So it, even on an audio engineering level, this movie like is impressive. The Citizen Kane is innovative. The, the Citizen Kane was the French New Wave before the French New Wave. Yes, and it wasn't until the French New Wave that people in America actually appreciated this movie. Right. So anyway, 
So anyway, Mac, what is your number two? Well, you said something negative about cartoons, and I'm slowly glowing and turning into a rage monster over <laughs> here. So I actually want to throw out a bit of a wrench in this. Yeah. I think one of the best debut films of all time is The Secret of Nim from 1982, directed by Don Bluth. Oh, you haven't seen this. Well, we'll need to watch it at some point. Yeah. So Don Bluth um, is a name that you guys have probably heard if you're at all interested in animation. I'm going to read out. I have a list here of some of the films he made. Some are good, some are pretty mediocre, but I'm sure you've heard of a number of these. Um, Anastasia, The Land Before Time, The Secret of Nim, An American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Titan A.E., The Pebble and the Penguin. Uh, I didn't know he did Bartok the Magnificent. Huh, I can't say I'm surprised. Uh, he did The Small One, which was a short film in 1978. I'm not counting that as his directorial debut. Right. Um but just an impressive filmography. Yeah, and, uh, he did um, he did Dragon's Lair. Um, he so he so he did some work in, in video games. You had me at Land Before Time and yeah. American Tale. Uh, there he, are no cats in America. There and the streets are paved with cheese. Uh-huh. Um, Don Bluth also worked with Disney for a number of years. He worked with Disney um, through the sixties up into the seventies. I believe he broke away in the eighties and worked with Spielberg of all people. But The Secret of Nim is one of the first films that he directed, and what's fascinating about it is even though it's like at a PG rating and it's based on a children's book, it is freaking dark. When I talk about I want animation for adults, this is what I think of. This is a film that is unabashedly dark, often kind of like violent, almost kind of grotesque. Wow. But... It's a beautiful adaptation. It's beautifully animated. You couldn't, you couldn't do this in any other medium other than animation. It's simply not conceivably done. Um, it's, it's, it's Don Bluth's work at its height. Uh, again. A first film, yeah. Yeah. And again, other films that he's done, have done are great. Are, they're great, like All Dogs Go to Heaven, Yahoo, uh, an American Tale. I don't need to tell you how great American Tale is. I grew up is. on that, and its sequels. Darn tootin', I grew up on uh, American Tale, Five Will Goes West. That was yes! my childhood. Yes! I'm glad someone else has seen that. See, oh, man. See, you would appreciate Preacher now. Because <laughs> yeah. you've seen Five Will Goes West. <laughs> anyway, The Secret of Nim uh, is Don Bluth at his best. It is one of the best animated movies of all time. Um... And you wouldn't believe it came out in 82. Like, you wouldn't... The animation is too good. You simply wouldn't believe it. Right. Um, it's Akira levels of good. Wow. That's high praise. So, if you have not seen, like Judd here, The Secret of Nim, I highly recommend it to you. It is one of the... It is one of the, it is one of the greatest animated films of all time. Um, and I think it's a hell of a start for Dom Bluth's career in filmmaking. At least in direct directing, rather, excuse me, as a directorial debut. So here we go. We've made it to our fifth spot. The last and probably my favorite of my list. Hang on one second. I'm, I'm just looking to make sure I've got all this right. My final, and I did originally put these in some sort of order. Really, the only one I care about is that this one's on top. I think I've actually put mine in order as we've gone along. Yeah, so so this is my uh, my opinion, right? It's so very course, subjective. Well, again, fair fair warning because I know there's someone out there who's raging at us. How did you not put on? I mean, here our opinions. Is, our opinions. Right. So here's the objective best directorial debut of all time: Charles Lawton, Night of the Hunter, 1955. This guy 
was an actor. Acted in over 60 movies. Uh, directed one film and was uncredited as helping direct another. Oh, so he, he pulled a... Um... A Macon Blair, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and so Night of the Hunter um, is a film in which uh, a... IMDb says, a religious fanatic marries a gullible widow whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their real daddy hid $10,000 he'd stolen in a robbery. So $10,000, obviously more significant in 1955. Um, And so the mother, I I think it's reductive to call her gullible. Um, I think she's desperate in over her head and terribly lonely. And um, turns to a very charismatic man who comes in and looks like he'd be a perfect father who could help her uh, financially and to take care of her children. And so she very reasonably, I don't think it's out of a gullibleness. I, I think no, no, she's no. willing to believe the best in people. This isn't Aunt May marrying Doc Ock. Right. And this and this movie That's a deep cut. is where we start. Uh, <laughs> this movie <laughs> is where we start, uh, I, I think, whether they know it or not, Stephen King. Uh, Steven Spielberg, um, they both draw a lot of their children against evil, like a sort of apocalyptic supernatural evil, manifested in an asshole, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Children versus that, um, that you see, I mean, in things from like the Goonies to it to uh, even, this is neither one of those guys, the Sandlot. You have these two kids who, um, are basically being pursued by this crazy man who uh, he has tattooed on his knuckles love and hate, and um, that's a uh, which we see referenced in later films like uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Yes, yes, that's a reference to this. Um, and the my favorite character in the movie is Lillian Gish's uh, Rachel Cooper, and she is the old lady who they take shelter with. She kind of takes care of children who are lost and who don't have homes. She's not any sort of official orphanage. She's just a decent person. And uh, at one point, he is coming to find her, and you hear him approaching because you hear him singing a hymn. And then she starts to hum along with him and sing with him. And she's sitting on the porch with a shotgun, and he's circling the house like a shark. And he knows the kids are inside. And it is one of the best scenes in all of cinema, in my opinion. It is why this is in my top four movies of all time. This film, where these kids are running, they take care of each other, they have their own arcs, their own agency, and then it's about uh, human decency, the best we can be, which is to be you know, selfless and take care of people who can't take care of themselves, and then the worst impulses that we have, where we want to take advantage of the weak to put ourselves forward, right? And that's, that's what this, this minister-preacher person is doing. Who's not, to minister and preacher's credit, he's not either one of those things. He's right. a con man. Well, of course. Of um, course. But it is, it is amazing the way he uses, uh, that character uses, um, and it's a great performance, he uses the language of a minister, preacher, and even just a decent person to hide himself to be that wolf in sheep's clothing. And the way that he takes advantage of people who are gullible because they're decent, right? So it's a little more complicated than just saying they're gullible. Of course. And so it is It is a movie about the triumph of the human spirit over these, and where we can both be these, be this good and be this bad, and you know, it's the battle for the human soul in the middle of those kids. So good, man. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to top that, actually, because that's a very compelling case. 
Uh, especially and, since I'm torn between two films of my own. And directorial debuts, though, like that's that's his first and really only movie, right? Like, and here holy it is, and it's crap! This, it's this central work to so much of 20th century literature and yeah. cinema. I'm gonna throw something out there, and it's not because it, like this is a crucial text. I think this is one of my top two picks, and I can't decide between this and The Secret of Nim. But I think for my pick, um, it's either it's either The Secret of Nim or it's Darren o- Darren Aronofsky's 1998. Pie, nice. Now, Pie is a very different film. Pie is not something I would describe as like a central or crucial text in any way. Uh, not unless you're interested in like really weird film, and it's clearly pulling on a lot of things like everything ranging from Eraserhead, um, from the paintings of Francis Bacon, um, who you've seen some of this stuff just generally everywhere. I believe this one figure with meat in 1954. Or was actually in the... If you uh, look at your video screen... Yes. Did you Google receive? is actually helpful. Type in uh, figure with meat. Francis Bacon. <laughs> yeah. Actually, wow. This, it's a really morbid picture, and this actually appeared in um, Tim Burton's original Batman film. Wow. Cool stuff. Anyway, the reason I think Pi is so significant is that for a debut film, of all the films we've talked about, I don't think there's anything denser than Pi. I actually haven't seen Pi yet. I, really, I know about yeah, it, I've really heard of it, it, yeah. So the basic premise is there's this guy named Max, and he's a brilliant mathematician. And he thinks that if he can, like, crack the code with pi, and it's, it's some sort of intense mathematic thing that I don't understand because I am an English major, um, that he can effectively organize the universe. And what happens is all of these pieces start moving in. Like, he, uh, this, this crime family starts chasing him, uh, this uh, sect of Jewish rabbis sort of move in on him and are like, we believe that like you can know God through this mathematic number. And meanwhile, um, Max start ha- starts having these insane visions, these delusions, and we're locked Max. in his... Max, yes. I thought you said Mac. I was like, no, no, so no. Mac, in the third person, while was watching the movie, yes. <laughs> he had these visions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I like it. What's real and what's not? <laughs> Dr. Erickson, you're looking at me funny. <laughs> Yes, you are off your medication again. It's okay. We're going to leave the bunker soon and die, Dr. Erickson. I did not sign up for this. Just eat your beans, Dr. Erickson. <laughs> I think we have our first recurring character. <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> we need t-shirts that say, eat your beans, Dr. Erickson. But yeah, Max starts having these delusions, these visions. Did you just say Mac again? No, I said Max. Sorry, I keep interrupting yeah. you. Max keeps... Uh, he has these visions, these... Um, and it's difficult to tell what's real and what's not, and his obsession with this number is tearing him apart. It's interesting for a couple reasons. For instance, it's shot in black and white very deliberately, but the contrast is cranked up. So it's not in grayscale, it's in black and white, and there's like no shades of gray. Hmm. And the contrast and the effect of that is you get a far more expressionistic, jarring visual style. Unlike the man who wasn't there, which we just watched recently, which is all shades of gray. Right, yeah. This is not. This is all black and white. Um, What's his name that, um, in Breaking Bad, he's got the bell, Hector. Giancarlo Esposito? No, not Giancarlo. Well, Giancarlo Esposito is amazing. Oh, no, 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 the, the actor. The actor? The uh, older guy? Who, yeah, who plays Hector. Oh, good lord. Mark Margolis, who you know as Hector Salamanca from uh-huh. Breaking Bad, he's in this. He plays a mathematician, and he's constantly playing Go, the Japanese uh, board game. Oh, cool. With 
Max. And it's interesting because the whole time they're talking about this, the film begins with Max throwing out the thesis that's like, I believe the world can be organized and ordered. And the film is him slowly and horrifically coming to terms with the fact that no, you cannot organize the world. Or worse, if you organize the world, there's no telling what will happen to you. Huh. It's it's not a horror movie. And yet it has all the markings of a truly frightening psychological thriller. If you had to give it a genre, what would you give it? Oh lordy. I would call it surrealist expressionism. Whoa. But it's but it, it, it Are we talking like Requiem for a Dream kind of thing? Uh we're talking like Imagine if Eraserhead was directed by the Coens. Well, okay, so a little more philosophical. Yeah. Oh, the film is super philosophical. Yeah, okay. And um, it's densely layered with all of these intertexts. Uh, it's, it's laced with Jewish mysticism, American crime thrillers, uh, all of these mathematic intertexts, the board game Go. Um, and the end of the film, oh, I don't know why... It's hard for me to talk about without spoiling the end of the movie. I'm just going to say that at the end of the film, Max makes a decision, and it's horrifying. The decision that he makes is easily the most chilling part of the movie, and they show you what's going on, and I'm just going to say it's graphic, but it makes sense for his character arc. Mm -hmm. he, he basically opts out. And I won't say what that entails, okay. but he opts out without killing himself kind yeah. of thing. And the final shot is the only time we see Max happy in the whole movie, this neurotic, uh, obsessed character who can barely interact with other people because of his obsession with this one thing. Um, it's a chilling movie, and it's far less optimistic than Night of the Hunter. But I think as directorial debuts go... This is one of the smartest and tightly made films. Hmm. Um, that, like Tarantino, knows its budget. It knows its budget, and it never really exceeds beyond it. But that's okay because you're dealing with such you're dealing with such a surreal thing that it's that it, it fits. Well, okay. The first frame. The first frame is a spoiler. Can I can I show it to you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this. Oh, good lord. And, yeah. Sweet baby Jesus, okay. It is a chilling, chilling movie. But, if you can stomach it, I do earnestly think it is, like, one of the best debuts for film out there. I've also noticed that, I like, my, my films tend to err on the side of the more horrific for um, film debuts. I wonder what that says about me. Right. Um, so... Yeah. I guess we now need to put these films in competition, don't we? Yeah. Which will be a little tricky, because I've not seen Night of the Hunter, and you've not seen, seen Pi or The Secret of Nim. All right. I'm actually going to read you a... Um, I'm going to read you a film review that this person has posted for Pi. Okay. And for me, um, for me, I think this sums up why I like it. Pi is the oddest, hippest, most chilling account of the descent into the abyss. Following mathematical clues derived from an analysis of the stock market, Maximilian Cohen begins his descent into madness as he attempts to uncover the nature of everything through the peculiar numerical entity known as Pi. Thrilling enough, but then combined with generous amounts of Kabbalistic mysticism, black and white fo uh, footage, and a soundtrack like an audible fractal, uh, excuse me, like an audible fractal, 
and you have a sensory snare which drags you along for the ride into Max's impending breakdown. Obsession has never been so exciting. Pi is an utterly gut-wrenching, mind-expanding phenomenon. If you have ever wondered about the universe, God, or the nature of insanity, Pi will take you where you don't want to go. That's compelling. To make an argument for Night of the Hunter, uh, I've got um, Roger Ebert here. Hi, Roger. Hi, Jude. We're going to talk a little bit about... Um, You're sounding a lot less robotic there, Ebert. Also, how did you make it into this bunker? Oh, he's been here the whole time. Did you not see him? He was in that shadow over there. Oh. He's also dead, so it's just his ghost, but... Oh, well, okay. I mean, compared to tripods, I'll take ghosts any day. Yeah, so the ghost of Robert Ebert here is going to tell us uh, why Charles Lawton, specifically, is one of the greatest first-time directors in American cinema. Charles Lawton showed here that he had an original eye and a taste for material that stretched the convention of the movies. It is a risky to combine horror and humor and a foolhardy approach and foolhardy to approach them through expressionism. For this first film, Lawton made a film like no other before or since, and with such confidence, it seemed to draw upon a lifetime of work. Critics were baffled by it, the public rejected it, and the studio had a much more expensive Mitchum picture, not as a stranger, it wanted to promote instead, Mitchum being the lead actor who plays the preacher, right, yeah. who was notoriously a diva on set. Back to quoting, But nobody who has seen The Night of the Hunter has forgotten it, or Mitchum's vo voice coiling down those basement stairs, children and so now you've heard both arguments and so what we're going to do is play the trailer from the movie that ends up winning and so you can try to piece together which movie it is go prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit you poor silly disgusting little wretch wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them as much as i love pie I do love pie. I love apple pie, cherry pie, raspberry pie. As much as I love Darren Aronofsky's pie, I think I'm comfortable giving it to Night of the Hunter. And the crowd goes wild. You have applause. Um, I want to thank you, Mac. Thank you for picking it. Oh, um, I, you made a very compelling case. Yeah. All right, everybody. So thank you for listening. And oh my God, they've oh, broken through. They're breaking through the door, yeah, everybody. Yeah, they're breaking through. Garrison, grab the stun rifle. We're good radio men, so we're gonna finish this show, everybody. Okay, Mac, shoot, shoot at the, the bright light. Shoot the light. Doctor Pearson, get it. Nine. This will not do. I'm Judd Potter. And I'm Max Sexton. Our theme music is Ad and by Broke for Free. You can tweet us on Twitter at Nerds Apocalypse. Follow us on Tumblr as well. If you want to keep up with all our episodes as they come out, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or really any podcasting service that's still around. Mac Duck! <laughs> and if you'd like to recommend possible future topics or just join in the conversation, follow us on those social medias. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a... <laughs> <laughs> Leave us a rating on iTunes. That really helps us grow and improve our show. Thank you. See you next week when we use the Night of the Hunter. Wait, Mac, go through the legs. There's, There's an opening. opening. There's an opening. I'm going. I'm going. Okay. All right.
We'll see you next week when, in honor of Night of the Hunter, we talk about the most terrifying movie villains. So imagine the sounds happening. Okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> John, John, you gotta keep running, man. You gotta keep running. I burst my my, my ankle burst. <laughs> <laughs> your, your ankle. What is it filled with water? <laughs>